You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where... We share our experiences, the ups and the downs of what it's like to be a rules-based investor. And of course, where we also take your questions towards the end. Good morning, Jerry. Good afternoon, Moritz. How are you guys doing? Hello. Welcome back, Jerry. I'm doing fine. How are you guys? Doing great. Glad to be back. Got my coffee in hand and ready for a good show. All set to go, yeah. End of a month and uh, what a month it's been with lots of uh, risk on, appetite, flowing back in the markets despite a lot of uh, kind of depressing economic statistics which um, you know has led to some level of continuation of some of the market reversals we saw back in late march from the stock markets in particular and of course in april the turnaround in the energy markets and we've also seen other commodities uh, kind of make reversals in the last few weeks but of course, with the balance sheet of the Fed now above seven trillion for the first time, you probably don't need to look too much further for a reason as to this sudden optimism in the markets. Um, we also saw some sectors of the bond market displaying extreme optimism, I would say, uh, such as short-term muni yields. Now they're down towards zero, so that's another sector in the junkiest of junk bonds. And, uh, you know, these are bonds of companies with the worst credit structures um, who have a high likelihood of bankruptcy. But, you know, I think the markets are just saying, no worries. These uh, bonds that are rated CCC had the best total return in the month of May um, within the junk bond sector. And I saw a headline yesterday from Bloomberg where it basically said, worst junk bonds do best in credit hope trade. And I think that is actually, um, you know, the word that captures what's going on right now. It's it's hope. Um, but that can also be a pretty dangerous word for investors. We, we often talk about the buy and hope strategy that we don't subscribe to, but there we are. But there certainly is an excessive amount of optimism right now in the markets, I would say. And of course, um, the week finished off with... Uh, President Trump coming out yesterday in the Rose Garden, giving a pretty stark warning to China and certainly heating up the Cold War again, uh, without a doubt. And um, to finish all this off, um, Friday afternoon, I noticed that the Atlanta Fed uh, chopped its real-time GDP Now indicator to minus 51.9% annualized for the second quarter. The prior estimate was minus 40.4%. So, Seems like the more bad news we get, the better it is for the equity market. So um, with that in mind, Moritz, how was your week? How was your month? Yeah, super bullish uh, equity markets, no doubt. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not a part of that, or at least not not fully. So I had a, you know, uh, minus, close to minus 3% month in, uh, in May. Uh, the last week was about a percent down. I'm about flat now for the year, you know, 40 basis points up. But, you know, as you know, this can change in a day or two. Um, so May wasn't that good. Um, you know, I, I got stopped out on on a couple of those short equity positions that I had on. Uh, I actually got a couple of new longs on, uh, but those haven't made any big money yet. 
um, I've noticed that the bond markets, which had supported us um, uh, substantially uh, in the earlier month of this year, um, they're, they're kind of like stopped going up as rapidly as rapidly as they used to, not making as much money there. Still being short crude uh, didn't help either. That one's bullish too. So yeah, it's it's a bit all over the place. Um, you've mentioned the muni yields. Uh, I've this morning I've picked up that the Italian ten-year bonds, the BTPs, had their best month since two thousand and three. May sound crazy. It is what it is. Let's just uh, follow these prices. Um, maybe in a couple of days everything's going to turn around again. Who knows? Um, we'll just uh, we'll just be there and do the trades. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And of course, Jerry, we're also interested to hear what your thoughts are. It's been a few weeks, so I would love to hear sort of what your, you know, generally thinking is um, as we enter the sixth months of of the year 2020. Um, it's been pretty eventful since we last spoke. So um, anything you want to uh, dive into in, in terms of that uh, would be great to hear. Well, I think that uh, there's a lot going on. I missed... Uh out on talking about uh, kind of the most interesting period ever, probably. So uh, one of the things that uh, came to mind just now was I tweeted about how important it was uh, to trade single stocks because there's so many uh, you know different chart patterns and uh, some of them have been in uptrends for a month or two or month or so, let's say. And I have a few of those, and but most of them are still flat or short uh, from a trend following point of view. So I'm glad I didn't have to wait for these indices to uh, get back to the levels that I would need them to get back to, to go long. So I was able to sort of incrementally add small little positions in stocks to my portfolio as the each individual stock that I followed. Some of them were making a new breakouts uh, and kind of, you know, uh, some of the stocks I was lucky enough to be in were ones that the market was saying was going to be ones that could uh, succeed during the, the lockdowns. So, uh, but most are still flat to short, but I was glad that uh, another reason to trade the single names, just pure diversification. Then I tweeted another thing the other day, a quote from Richard Dennis about how, how important it is not to miss an opportunity in the markets and uh, for the trend follower to hit those breakouts. And I think that's pretty much a big lesson for me is how close you can come. And I came and, you know, to, um, you know, most important thing was getting those trades on, getting out of those longs and pretty much getting into the shorts uh, and the currencies and commodities that we, uh, you know, have in our portfolio. So, so uh, we were able to mitigate some of the losses that we were having in the long equities back when the, uh, this whole thing started. So I think, uh, and you had mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, Neil's about, it just seems that uh, the simple hit the breakouts, sell the breakouts was something that was very effective. And I sort of rededicated myself to uh, that and making sure that my approach is not too fancy. And I'd always sort of been told from day one that uh, be careful with filters. So I want to make sure my filters don't filter me out of uh, some good trades. And uh, I guess lastly, um, some of the trades we did, they were kind of uh, not as maybe as good as they could have been because of the vol uptick in the vol near the breakouts where we had to size based upon that volatility. So I know that I've read some things that uh, 
on the internet from people that I follow that sort of said, yeah, maybe the CTAs that uh, got hampered a little bit by, you know, if you went a day early in the peso or the Russian ruble, your position could have been uh, a lot bigger based upon uh, the ATR that we that I look at. So there's a lot of, a lot of things going on, a lot of uh, ways that it impacts our trend following. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to come back to some of those points you just mentioned, Jerry, but let me just from my point say, um, just to, to sort of finalize the roundup, I mean, um, even though what, what Moritz does and what we do is, is pretty different, our performance is tracking each other quite closely this year, both on a monthly and year-to-date basis. So, uh, you know, that's how we also came out with a little bit of a loss uh, in, in May. Uh, energies were by far the worst uh, sector with this sharp reversal in in, um, in many of them. Stocks didn't do well either. Um, fixed income was okay for us and volatility uh, continues to do really well uh, on our side. It's even though it's a small part of, of our overall program uh, unless you buy it uh, as a single uh, product but volatility seems to be a, a great area right now at least. But then Going back to your points uh, before we dive into other topics we want to talk about, um, you mentioned about the single stocks, and and I, you know, I find it quite interesting because clearly this first kind of five months of the year has, of course, been very much dictated by what's going on in the equity sector. And I read uh, a study from uh, one of our friendly peers that. Um, and and this is not new. I mean, it's something we've we've talked about before, so there's nothing new about it, but it's always something that's good to revisit. And that is, of course, when when we have a big crisis in equities, as we've seen this year, the initial part of that crisis is a, is the is the period where we end up giving back a lot of money from the equity sector because we tend to be, you know, long positioned and then the markets sell off, we give back a lot. And then the big question comes, do we get follow through on our short positions or not, right? And and this time we got follow through for a little, for a few weeks maybe, and then we've seen this massive reversal. And um, and I was just wondering, I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but I, I wanted to see if, if you've ever looked at more closely to it because if we have a moderate crisis, right? If we have, you know, um, like we saw in um, February of 2018, where it was, yeah, it was a, I wouldn't even call it a crisis, but it was certainly a sell-off, but there was no follow-through. Then equities is not a great, you know, in, in itself as a sector, it's not a great sector to trade, certainly not when you trade the indices like we do. Um, and But then if you have an extreme crisis like 08, for example, then we will get the follow-through and we will end up making money from equities as well as other sectors. So equities is kind of like, you know, it's not always consistently a great sector. And I wondered whether you had done some analysis on the difference during those periods for you on your single stock portfolio versus a portfolio of, of indices, whether in an extreme or moderate uh, crisis, whether there's much, you know, whether you feel you get much better output from single stocks rather than um, indices? Oh, well, that's a big question. Uh, I, to some degree, I would have to say I would ignore this, the back test. <laughs> so I would sort of ignore the back test and force the stocks to, um, to uh, analyze the stocks the way I would the commodities and just trade those breakouts and say, I can't 
I'm interested in the average winner, the average loser, the average trade, but really how they behave this one sector, or let's even split it down to these shorts, you know, in this one sector, how have they done? I want to resist that from kind of a robustness point of view in that we trade all the markets the same, we trade the longs and shorts the same, we're looking at all these trades and all these different markets, we're not splitting them up and we're trading stocks different or commodities different. So in that regard, I would sort of resist. But I think from an observational point of view, uh, you know, I think that the short indices work better, have worked better historically than short single names. But I think, uh, notwithstanding 2008, where the S&P hit a 200-day low in January, so we got some consolidation after a big up move, and we were able to get short the S&P in most of those indices, um, really near the highs. And it's the last time, really. Everything since then has sort of been a crash. Uh, but I think the key to... Uh, all of trading, you know, and, and the way that we trade is um, diversification. And you're just going to be in trouble if you're going to try to turn it around quickly. So, and CTAs don't need to turn it around quickly. We, we came in short some stuff. We came in long gold and long treasuries. And so we, every day we come in with a good uh, pandemic portfolio. We're like scared every day. And we're like, we're long, we're short, we're diversified in all the sectors. And so we're ready. Now we did have some, I had some stocks to get out of, of course, but I came in short some stocks as well. So if you are 100% long equities and you're gonna try to figure out a way, hopefully this will be 2008, and I'll be able to turn this thing around and get short and get flat very quickly, then you're going to be disappointed. But if you really concentrate on your stock portfolio, like you do in your commodities and your currencies, um, and you're desiring to have an approach that has some longs and shorts, then you don't have to be so uh, perfect in, uh, in the stock sector either. So you, it's just dangerous to sort of figure out how you're going to make it all work if you're long or you're all short. And that's why that's the appeal to the single names is that uh, they can be correlated, uh, and they were uh, greatly correlated, but uh, overlaying the trend following on top of it prior to the massive crashes, you can get some uh, diversification in longs and shorts. And I think it kind of confirms um, also what, what, what I've seen, what we've seen, and... Um, I mean, of course, you mentioned the point and the importance of diversification, and we talk about that a lot. But I, the point I wanted to get across for everyone to, under, to understand or appreciate at least is that we often refer to these crises as equity crises. But I think it's important to, as you rightly say, since we look at everything the same way, at least in our expect, you know, in our um uh, what what our data shows is that it's often not the equities that are actually the ones driving the performance during these periods of time. It's other things in the portfolio. And what we tend to see is that things like commodities are frankly one of the more consistent performing sectors during crises. And therefore, it's so important to have them in the portfolio. And that's kind of also, I think, 
I mean, in in a way, that's also what you're saying. I mean, the the diversification, treat everything equal. That that's the thing we need to do, and and obviously that's what all three of us do, but but a lot of our peers do as well. Um, but I'm not so. Sh- I, mean, I just want to make sure that people listening to us um, appreciate the fact that even though we talk about equity crisis, it's not necessarily where we would make the money in an equity crisis, so to speak. The crew trade was uh, you know pretty pretty amazing. Uh, being short yeah. the, the energy. So that's a prime example. Yeah, true. Well, the observation that I've made is that regarding the equities, if if I traded the equities in my trend-following system long flat as opposed to long short, I would get better results. Uh, I would get a higher sharp ratio. Now, um, I've decided to fade that observation because I want to to take every position in the same way. Um, so it's kind of like ingrained, you know, this, this week, for instance, I've read an article, there's a, you know, uh, Howard Marks comes out with uh, a lot of memos this year, all of which I enjoy reading. Uh, he normally comes out with like four a year, but he's probably done 10 in the first, you know, five months of this year. Um, and the last two have been about uncertainty and I really like them. It's really like, you know, saying you cannot forecast any of those events, you know, uh, nothing about the future is really known. So we operate in an environment of uncertainty and therefore I don't want to make the, the call with my system that only because the equities have had this um, behavior in the past 30 years for which I have the data um, forces me to trade them long flat. Uh, or long only, right? And uh, so I, I go, yeah, let's 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 trade them long short, trade them the same way as all the other markets in my portfolio, because there may be at some point in time, you know, come come the time where those markets will have tremendous trends to the downside, and then I will be very happy to have them on as shorts. So it's a patience game as well. You know, not not everything that you see in a back test, even if it's thirty years and it has a sample size, means that you know the future is going to, you know, behave according to that back test. No, no, no. It can be way, way different. And and equities could have major downtrends. So yeah, I need to trade them on the short side, even though I could probably convince more people uh, looking at my track record from the outside, you know, with a nicer track record and a higher sharp ratio and and uh, and and lower drawdowns if I only traded them on the long side. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's um, kind of a classical thing we're 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 in now, and and we've talked about a while ago. We talked about why we think that maybe it's hard for us to capture these downtrends, in particular in equities, where there clearly has been kind of an upwards uh, bias, um, meaning that they spend more time going up than they go down, and they tend to turn around on a day. And when they form a high, they tend to spend a month doing it. So maybe we're able to get out better at a, you know at those. But that's changed maybe in the last few years, where suddenly these sell-offs come straight from an all-time high. So again, doesn't tell you that it's going to you know be in one specific way. But it is definitely an interesting point. What I also liked about Howard Marks is I saw an interview with him a couple of weeks ago, where he basically just, I mean, he kind of talked a lot about how our systems would also react where he says it's not about being either or all the time, you know, now I'm suddenly bullish or I'm suddenly bearish. It's this, you know, it's it's shades of cautiousness or shades of uh, optimism. And so 
um, so they move their portfolio in in these steps where you don't go from suddenly being fully long to fully short. It really is a process, um, and that's exactly how a trend following system operates. We build up our position slowly and we get out slowly, but we do capture these the middle part of 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 the move, um, so to speak. But and if there's going to be a secular move in a certain sector commodities or currencies or uh, interest rates or stocks. We have lots of different markets, individual markets in those sectors, and we're gradually adding and subtracting from those as well. So it's really fun to have hundreds of small decisions rather than, you know, oh my gosh, you know, this is make or break right here, right now. What am I, I got to handle this thing correctly. Absolutely. I've got a few things, uh, papers that caught my attention, but I know we also sometimes uh, wait for some uh, good tweets from your side. Jerry, I don't know, you mentioned a few already, but are there anything that kind of stood out recently that you want to bring up uh, from, from that side? One of the things I found pretty interesting was uh, people have done studies on pure trend following CTAs and sort of multi-strat CTAs. CTAs trying to add in uh, other strategies to smooth out their performance and uh, versus people like me who are just uh, unfortunately 100% trend following all the time and that's more ups and downs but uh, this study sort of came away with sort of a logical conclusion that um, actually the the CTAs that are trend following only have a tendency to add more to a portfolio of stocks and bonds because they're so much different and uh, versus uh, maybe some of the same trends are happening in a multi, more of a multi-strat CTA, similar trends to the stock markets. I thought that was kind of interesting that there is a big benefit to uh, having a crazy CTA versus a calm CTA sometimes. And so is that the article where they talked about convexity and, and how you get more convexity from a pure trend follower, which essentially often leads to the fact that the return profile looks like a smile where you tend to make you know great returns if there are extreme down moves in equities, but you also tend to make good returns if there are extreme up moves, and then you kind of forms a smile in between, um, which is kind of what a lot of investors are looking for. Um, is that the article you were thinking of? Yeah, and they uh, another thing that we have a tendency to overlook, which I can't uh, go too crazy arguing about this idea, but it's sort of interesting, which is, this is a quote, CTAs don't aim to protect portfolios from short-lived drawdowns. Short-lived drawdowns, by definition, will be recouped after a couple of months. The bigger risk is when the recovery is slow, and this is exactly when CTAs thrive. So, uh, you know, making 3,000%, I mean, I kind of really like that idea. I think that's just fantastic. And uh, I would like to be in that situation one of these days to make 3,000%. But since these things, uh, you know, are sort of recovering every single time almost, uh, you know, it's hard to sort of uh, get too excited about something that looked like a crisis, but really wasn't a crisis. Uh, I don't know, maybe this one's a little bit different since the 30% drawdown happened so quickly. Yeah, and and as we often say, I mean, it, it's always different, right? I mean, this this uh, this sell-off was, was different from the last one, for sure. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this as well, Moritz, but I think since you mentioned this thing about making 3,000%, that was actually the other thing I picked up this week, is that, of course, there's been a lot of press about certain vol strategies 
tail risk protection strategies making you know three thousand six hundred and seventy five percent and and what have you but then this article came out uh, a day or so ago where people started to look into okay so how did exactly they make these three thousand percent and these were these are big firms i mean these are not small firms being um uh, being mentioned here and it turns out that they have a slightly different let's put it mildly slightly different way of calculating performance than we do because it turns out that they're actually calculating the performance based on the premium they paid for the options or the margin they posted not the funds under management which is obviously very different and that's how we do it so these 3000 plus percentages when you turn it into kind of a normal way of calculating performance uh, suddenly they're down to maybe 150% or 200%. It's still a lot of performance. So, you know, without a doubt, it's great performance. But it's not 3,000%. Well, it, it, it can be 3,000% uh, the way they calculate it. I'm sure the calculation is mathematically correct. It's just the question is, uh, is it confusing uh, potential investors and existing investors as to what has been going on, right? Um, yesterday evening, for example... Uh, I've picked it up on Bloomberg that a person has purchased um, 3,050 calls at 20 cents um, two hours prior to expiration. And then, you know, the the S&P future, I think, continued to trade uh, upwards north of 3,050. So, you know, that, that call option uh, is substantially worth more. So thousands and thousands of percent return if you divide it by the initial premium paid, right? But a very different number if you divide it by the option notion, and yet a very different number if you divide it by uh, the AUM of the fund that you're trading. So the question really is, um, what are people used to and accustomed to? And most of our investors, obviously, they look at returns based on AUM. You've made 1%, your AUM are 100 million, that means you've made a million, right? You're not, um, you're not calculating it in a different way. But with those kind of like funds that, you know, trade those options, of course, there's different ways to do it. Um, it's just, uh, I think well, it's confusing. Well, you say there are different ways to do it, but really, are there? I thought this was a regulatory requirement. I'm not sure if it is. If you're managing people's money, yeah. If you're managing uh, people's money, there is one way of calculating performance, right? Okay, well, if it is a regulatory requirement, then, you know, I guess people need to stick to that requirement and, and, and follow it. Yeah. Um, then the question is, why have they not done it? And if they don't do it, uh, maybe the regulator should come in and tell them that they now need to do it, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it is uh, illegal. And the whole point of this is that uh, the whole problem is that there's tremendous bleed and uh, without seeing the entire track record, because it's perfectly fine to say you were up 3,000 as long as the track record shows, well, we were also down 90% at one point. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, these things uh, have this problem. Everyone would do them. But I do yes. think this is a great opportunity uh, to, for one of my lifetime goals to be achieved, which is for CTAs to drop the idea of being the tail hedgers. If these guys can make all this money and it's so scientific and options, and uh, then let's give it to Wayne and, uh, and uh, Taleb and let them do this and let the CTA sort of gravitate to something we're good at, which is... Uh, a more perfect portfolio of currencies and commodities and stocks and bonds and longs and shorts. And then maybe we can get back to uh, seeing trends that we used to see in those markets, not just in the stocks. And we can get back to a situation where the diversified CTAs made more money than the stock market, 
and of course at lower risk because of all the diversification. And we can get the tail hedgers to hedge the CTAs, which can be the dominant investment versus the S&P. So I think uh, it's a great opportunity for everyone to go ahead and just purchase tail protection because that's seemingly what they want, regardless of how quickly these things recover. And CTAs can trans transform uh, into something more s sustainable. That is a very good point. Um, you know, you've mentioned the bleed and the long-term track record of those funds. And of course, if you're making 3,000% or 4,200% or whatever the number was, even if it's just 100% in a month, obviously that makes fantastic headlines, right? And you'll be all over the media. The news are all yours uh, for that month. But if you looked at the longer-term track record, you know, for those tail hedge funds, I mean, they're just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And even though they make 100% or 3,000% in a given month, they're far, far away from reaching a new all-time high, right? But this is kind of like disregarded. And, uh, and, and also the way some of those funds, and I'm not mentioning names here, I don't want to point fingers, is um, they're unlike us, where we have to kind of like get to a new high watermark before we get paid an incentive fee, they reset. You know, they either have mandates which reset every year so that, you know, if the tail performance then actually kicks in, they'll get paid a performance fee. But, you know, if nothing happens for two, three, four, five years, well, okay, so every year the high watermark resets, right? Which is, no, none of our investors would allow us to do that, right? Um, but they, they do it that way. And the other thing I want to say is it, it doesn't seem to work um, on both sides. The shortfall guys selling out of the money puts, selling the VIX systematically, whatever, right? Eventually they blow up, as we've seen. Some of them survive, but many of them just, you know, go belly up and uh, uh, they get caught by, you know, a left tail event such as the pandemic. And the long vol guys, uh, the tail guys, they don't blow up. They just slowly bleed to death and never make money. So what's it going to be? <laughs> but uh, there seems to be a group of people out there now who have had some long-term success in uh, hedging and uh, who know how to stay around. So I've been watching lots of Zoom webinars, and uh, our friend Wayne is one of them, and I guess there's others out there who have at least convinced me that they probably know how to do this. So um, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it comes back to this point about what investors ideally want is they want something that can make them a lot of money if we really have a big crisis and a big sell-off. But they also want some upside when when equities are doing fine because that's what they do most of the time. And and we know from the evidence, at least, that that's really what CTAs can do, unlike, as Moritz pointed out, unlike an either vol, uh, long vol or short vol strategy, they can't deliver both, right? So, But the point is, I think, to, 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 to what you said, Jerry, is we have been given this label, right? We've been given this label as crisis alpha, which um, we've talked about this many times where, at least for my part, initially I thought that's great. Finally, we have something institutions can gravitate to and make it maybe easier for them to say, oh yeah, I need some of that. But now it's a label where we feel kind of, oh, but that's exactly the profile we have to you know, have but we don't, and we never had it. It's just that historically we've delivered good returns when equities have had substantial sell-offs. So, so I think that's the challenge um, because every strategy tends to be given a label, and I'm not sure we have the right label yet, as you point out, Jerry. Uh, we should 
find a new space, a new place in the whole hedge fund or alternative investment uh, arena where we can just do what we do and 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 um, that we've we've never we probably never changed. Markets change, so our performance will change, but we've never really changed as a strategy, and we've been around for a long time as a strategy, right? But we we all love labels, but I just I'm not sure we found the right label just yet for for what we do. I think you know um, there is a, a a very good place for uh, volatility focused funds in investors' portfolios, and I think the distinction here is important. There's active volatility traders such as you know just you know as an example, for instance, there's there's Artemis or thirty six South. This is something very different than tail exposure. They're not pure tail funds. A pure tail fund, for instance, is Universa, right? They hold themselves out as exactly that. That's what they do. They have exposure to very episodic, very extreme left tail events. That is a very different return profile compared to those other volatility traders or long short vol funds, such as, for instance, Capstone. And I think this is where there is, or, or Logica, you've mentioned Wayne, Jerry, right? Not, not long short, but a different type of volatility exposure. It's not purely tail focused. And actively managed funds such as these, I think um, if, they're, if they're managed professionally, they're, there's a, a good place for them in, in an investor's portfolio. That's very different than systematic shortfall, and that's very, very different to being exposed to just long tail. Absolutely. Feel free to bring up any um, things that you want to talk about. The, the, the other article I just picked up this week, I think, I can't remember, it was published a couple of days ago, is from our good friend Katie Kaminsky, who wrote another interesting paper. Um, this time, again, tying back to some of the things we've talked about um, many times, and it's about risk management and the role of volatility and how we manage the risk. And I want to read something uh, from her paper and then we can kind of comment on it um, uh, as, as, as you feel like. And it, and these are just small snippets that I picked out and, and, and she writes, although many investors and portfolio managers are aware of risk, their portfolios are often not risk aware, i.e. they do not use volatility to size portfolio allocations actively. In a portfolio that is risk aware, the size of the portfolio positions would incorporate the overall level of risk to adjust portfolio allocations over time. For example, as an asset's risk increases, the allocation to that asset should get smaller. In practice, there are many different methods and approaches to incorporate volatility into your portfolio construction. Common examples include managed future strategies, risk parity strategies, and many other. For risk-aware portfolios, the goal is to manage to manage to changing volatility environments to achieve a more stable risk profile over time. And then comes an interesting uh, point that she um, kind of ends up with. She says, however, neither a risk-managed nor a non-risk-managed strategy will always perform well. Instead, it seems that combining both non-risk-managed and risk-managed strategies could potentially be more robust over time. And of course, the three of us, we do things differently. One is in one camp and two of us uh, or two of you are in, in another camp. But it's kind of interesting that she says, that, you know, towards the end that, you know, you kind of can't say which is best. You maybe just want to combine the two. Hmm. And I think it goes back to your point earlier, Jerry. And it was kind of my observation a few weeks ago where we, where we looked at that the simpler trend-following strategy seems to have done better in March, because you weren't, I mean, of course, 
volatility at the entry is important and it does impact performance. But not being too, you know, um, cute about it and and continue to adjust your positions as the volatility really did explode in March would have given you maybe more bang for the buck during the sell-off uh, this time around, for sure. I need Moritz to explain this article to me. I read it a couple of times. <laughs> I don't have much to say about it. Uh, go ahead, Moritz. Well, I haven't read it yet. Uh, we can have a chat later on, but um, definitely sounds like vol control to me. You know, volatility to me, and I, I, I think this is also true for the way Jerry thinks, is um, is not necessarily risk. It is not risk. You know, risk to me is something different than just the volatility of a position. The risk to me is that I'm losing money, some of my core capital, permanent loss. And I think that I have a superbly risk-managed portfolio with my trend-following trading system, even without applying volatility control. I have stops that I follow that protect me, right? I have position sizing based on the average true range or some volatility measure at the time of the the entry so that every trade that I'm doing, regardless of it being a long or a short trade, can have the same expected P&L and contribution to the uh, portfolio in terms of expected returns. Uh, all of that happens. Uh, all of that is there and, and takes care of the risk that I'm willing to take and endure with my portfolio. I don't, uh, I still, you know, maybe at some point people will convince me, but to the present day, I'm I'm really lacking, uh, you know, the, the 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 facts, the substantiated facts to take me and sway me the other side. I have not discovered the benefit of an ongoing vol control uh, process uh, in a trend following portfolio that trades across a different set of markets, long and short. I haven't seen it, but I you know, I continue to look for it. I'm not saying that uh, I'm Mister Know It All. I just um, well, I think this is kind of what she's saying, right? That you can't really say one is better than the other. It, they're different. And um, combining them might be be useful or not. But I think that's kind of also what she says, that there's no right or wrong answer here. For those of you who can't see Jerry, he's smiling because it's one of his favorite topics, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there is a right or wrong answer for almost everything in life. I think uh, it's just probably difficult to find it. You, know, you can't have two equations and, oh, one's right and the other one's right. No, you know, if it's the same issue, it's one of them is right and one of them is not right. So, but our inability to know that, that's sort of a different issue. I agree. I don't know the best trend following system, although I do hold out that there is the best. Oh, I think Wayne and I had a conversation about this a few weeks ago on Twitter where I guess the point I was trying to make is um, even if you nail down the back test, it doesn't mean it's going to be the best in the future. So uh, it's just unknowable. But I would hesitate to sort of say to people and to young people starting out or traders and researchers like, uh, oh, you know, don't worry about it. There's so many different solutions to this problem. Uh, they're all sort of equal. You know, I don't think that's the type of rigorous approach that a person wants to take. Uh, you kind of want to keep searching for some objective facts, and uh, it, it is definitely true at the same time. We definitely believe that uh, diversification is great, but uh, I haven't read this article. I've got to read it. But another point, actually, that um, is different. This is not about vol, but I think it came up uh, during this week on Twitter as well. I think it was uh, Michael Benesinas who um, uh, posted something, and I saw another comment on it that I commented back on and it was this thing about that oh yeah we see all these great trends in the markets like the Australian dollar 
so we should have made money from it, right? But but actually, that may not be true because it depends on your system. You could have made money on it. And maybe you want to explain that, Jerry, because you, you, um, you saw that about how he applied two different systems and, and what the outcomes were. Right. I think uh, just uh, eyeballing the charts and saying, hey, we have trends here. We'll always have trends. The markets are always going to trend. It uh, begs the question, well, when I do a back test or in real life, when I'm actually trading my system, did I make money? And some of the reasons we don't make money, they're pretty obvious. We haven't had big trends. And I think that's sort of what has happened for the past 10 years. The trends that uh, the systems we built our models on, our systems on, using historical data, they had more big trends. But um, I think just looking at the trades with your eyeball, the computer is more brutal and it sort of says, well, wait a second here, what were your commissions? Were your slippage? Uh, how many crashes did we have? V tops, V bottoms, uh, systems, you know, how there's been a trend up in the stock market recently. And I don't think, uh, I've certainly haven't made money in that trend up. So if the trends start to look a lot different, there's no substitute for running it through the computer. And, uh, you know, we're questioned, uh, I see these trends and why haven't you made more money? And, uh, well, it's more complicated than that, and you can't just, uh, we will always see trends, but if our winning percentage is, you know, it drops down to the low 30s versus the high 30s, what's that going to do to us? If it's concentrated only in stocks, or mostly stocks, well, we've seen what happens if there's no commodity trends. So uh, there'll always be trends, but it, and, you know, from our selfish point of view, we, we would say to people, uh, we're the experts. Let us show you how to navigate these because you can't just look at your chart books or your stock charts and say, oh, I think I can do this because there's always trends and uh, I just got to follow some simple moving average. It's more complicated than that. We have to navigate around a lot more things, a lot of things to worry about. Uh, the big trends are one part of it. Uh, even when we have them, it may not be as rosy as, we, as it looks by the naked eye. Which is also, I guess, why we see, you know, um, more maybe return dispersion or performance dispersion between trend followers because not all trend followers are equal, right? And uh, and so, and I, I can't remember who it was that made a comment, um, but in any event, my, my point was just, yeah, I mean, we can all have kind of the same, just because there are trends or just because we have roads to drive on doesn't mean we're good drivers, doesn't mean we're good trend followers. I mean, at the end of the day, the you know survival of the fittest, the best trend followers will survive, the best of everything will survive, you know, in anything. But luck plays a big role as well. Yeah. There have been times, I know in uh, 20, I think it was 2013, I made a decision to trade, uh, increase my stock allocation and I made 20% that year. That was a tremendous overperformer. <laughs> and then 2014 was a good year for all of managed futures. But uh, 2013, yeah. it was just, I walked out of the conference room in January and said, eh, we should increase our stock allocation. And so it was just totally random. And I don't trade a lot of bonds. Well, I've underperformed. I trade more commodities. Yeah, I've underperformed. So a lot of it is just these seemingly, uh, they are random choices and luck choices and people make claims. Well, better CTA. I'm, I know my first uh, 
uh, idea about this was in 1988 or something. I started trading for other people and uh, my started my business. And someone asked me about another trader who had a better track record than me. And I said, "Well, um, oh yeah, that's that silver trade. '87, he crushed it in silver, but his wife was pregnant, and he took his positions off right before the baby was due, and he got out of the high of the silver market." <laughs> <laughs> so you never know a short-term performance, yeah. positive and negative, can give you the wrong impression. Yeah. I like what Jared just said uh, about the markets and some of those lucky decisions as to when it is that you make changes to your systems or you add a bunch of new markets to your systems, uh, change sector ways, you know, all of that type of stuff. It may be at a lucky time or an unlucky time, but the people that look at the track records don't know that and you're under no obligation to tell them what you did and, and how you did it. You may, but you know, you're, you're not going to be blasting it out. So um, this, this is just the nature of the beast. We're all making our decisions here. Um, and sometimes they're lucky, sometimes they're unlucky. Coming back to those charts, I, um, I often see myself looking at charts since you've mentioned the uh, Aussie dollar, Niels, and you know, I look at the Aussie dollar, like the long-term trend of that thing is down, the short-term trend after the correction is up, and I would kind of like go, yeah, I'm, I'm probably long that market now. Well, it turns out I have no position. Tough luck. <laughs> That's what the computer tells me. It's it's not yet time to be long. So, um, you know, uh, bite your fist. It is what it is. And another thing the computer tells you, it doesn't tell you... Our systems don't tell us we should be long or we should be short, or that uh, you know this is some objective measurement of now it's in an uptrend, now it's in a downtrend. It's way worse than that. It just says you've chosen these parameters, you've done your back test. If you follow these parameters for the rest of your life, you'll probably eke out a profit overall, not maybe in the Aussie dollar itself, but the whole point of it is is that you're going to do this. Jerry's short, Moritz is long, you're both gonna make money. How is this possible? How can a good trend follower, one of them be long and one of them be short? Because it all just goes back to the idea that you're going to do these trades in every market, in the longs and in the shorts. And for the rest of your life, you're committed to, to following this system. So the following part of it is what's going to determine um, that you'll more than likely be profitable. Yeah, no, I like that. And also, it kind of goes to this point we uh, talked about with um, the chart that um, Michael Milicinas was sharing about the Aussie dollar, where on one set of parameters, uh, the shortest, I, I would imagine, the shorter ones, you were getting into good shorts, but you were also getting stopped out all the time. So you kind of probably didn't really make much money out of that downtrend. But then you had another system, which was more long term, you made a good profit on the way down, but you gave back a big chunk of that when the reversal came. So again, it just goes back to this thing about knowing what you don't know and 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 plan for that. And we plan for that through diversification uh, on so many levels, whether it's time frame, markets, whatever it might be. Um, and um, at least that's one thing that seems to be um, a lot of agreement on in the world of finance, um, that diversification is super important. Diversifying the look-back periods, not being too short-term or being too long-term, but trading a lot of different parameters in that, uh, at least historically, good spot. You know, I think we've also said, uh, I've wondered, I think, uh, maybe I should be shorter-term. The shorter-term really looks bad over the past 
15 or 20 years, but is that a guarantee of the future? But I think that, you know, uh, the realization 20 years ago that trend following CTAs needed to be longer term uh, was something everyone started to realize. And if we're too short term, we get chopped up. The old turtle systems, they're difficult because they get chopped up. So we need to be longer term. And if we're longer term, we do participate in multi-year trends where there's historically been some really big profits. But that Aussie dollar chart says, okay, that's great. You can do that. What are you going to do when there's a substantial reversal that in two or three weeks, it takes out you know half your profit that you've spent two years building? So what are you going to do? And so this is why we get paid and how things change over time and we have to navigate around them and yet not be changing our systems all of the time and being too uh, adaptive. Oh, adaptive is another bad word, but uh, we want to be robust and not change our systems, but uh, we have to make money. So I think this is what happened and some people chose, uh, well, let's fall target. So as the volatility increases in these big trends, we can take some off the table. And I think that is a worthwhile goal to take some off the table. I think there's other better ways to do it, but I can see why that would be tempting. Just out of curiosity, by the way, I know we've talked about it a lot when uh, um, the last couple of years or the last year, um, another one of our friendly peers in the industry went and decided to um, ease back on trend. Uh, didn't think that they it was going to um, be a good source of uh, returns going forward, uh, at least compared to the past. But did you notice they put out a paper about trend following in the last month or so, where actually they talk about trend following being a pretty good strategy? I don't know if you came across that um, or read it. No, please send it. No, I'd love okay. to read it. Well, then we'll have to have you back, Jerry, next week. My God, uh, there's the tempting yeah, yeah, proposition. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, uh, the stocks, you know, the stocks are probably doing more stocks than they used to, to do. So it's that would certainly help. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention a while back was um, you can put the bonds in that same category. I mean, how have the bond shorts done? You know, bond shorts. Mm. Well, the history has shown me that bond shorts are no good. Stock shorts are not good. Bond shorts are not good. It's, you know, in this day and time uh, where the whole idea that that sometimes a trend-following system's main benefit is to just look, do the stupid trade, get short crude and stay short crude. It can't go negative and get short commodities and all the things that we offer people that when weird things happen, they need this type of protection. Paying attention to the precedence of history should be the last thing on our list because I think everything, uh, all the money that I've made in my entire life has been on things that we've never seen before and we keep being reminded of that. So, uh, I am in no mood to uh, make claims about what can happen in the future. Yeah, I think this year has been, you know, what a year to uh, see so many reminders about things that never happened before and suddenly it happens, right? So uh, we've got a few questions, um, but as always, if there's anything else you want to bring up, feel free. But we've got a few questions uh, lined up, many of them from brian and james but there's also one from daniel i see here brian and i know we discussed this a couple of weeks ago uh, moritz uh, brian was just interested in general about you know 
what are the big kind of exposures generally or themes right now from a trend following port point of view and i don't know if you um had a look at that on your side um what are the main things that uh, you're you're participating in at the moment moritz the main things i'm participating in uh painful things i'm participating in is a short position in crude oil another painful one that's still on is a short position in bitcoin <laughs> bitcoin futures oh okay um uh, still there it's changed quite a bit. I mean, obviously, as, as people will probably uh, have ease have of understanding is, you know, the, the equities that we uh, took short positions in, some of that stuff got stopped out uh, because the recovery has been uh, so swift. So it's kind of like, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, the, probably the longest dating positions that I have on is now the, the, the short crude position I have on for quite a time, to be honest. You know, this is this is not a position that I took at like, you know, 30 bucks. Uh, I, I sold it way, way higher than that. I think in the mid fifties or something like that even. So that's, that's, that has a couple of days, days, days in the trade. Well, I'm, I'm long gold since a bit longer, um, already. Actually, I'm short net gas since quite a time. And, you know, some of the bonds I'm long and, and didn't get kicked out and some of the short term interest rate, uh, you know, futures positions as well. But they're kind of like, like I've said before, at least in the past month, they've just been kind of sitting there, even the past six weeks. They, they, they haven't continued their very strong upward trends that they showed uh, in January, February, and um, at the very beginning of March. Yeah. I mean, and, and generally speaking, it's not really been, at least also on our side, it's not really a period where we have you know, huge commitments one way or the other. But I agree with you. I mean, energy obviously is, is one sector that seems to attract some some exposure for sure. Now, we have another question from Daniel in uh, Brisbane in Australia. Um, slightly different question. Uh, he, uh, he writes here, I have a question for the podcast. If a breakout is used as an entry signal, for example, 100-day high for a long entry, does it matter how the price got to the 100-day high? For the first hypothetical example, the trading range for the past 100 days is $185 up to $199 and has basically been a quiet sideways market and then reaches above the 100-day high at $200. 10 days ago, the price was at $195. And then it goes on. In the second hypothetical example, the trading range for the past 100 days is $150 on the downside and $199 on the upside and has had periods of shorter uptrends and downtrends in the past 100 days and was at $160 10 days ago. It has just reached the 100-day high at $200. So I think what he's trying to say is that there could be different ways in terms of um, or, or different types of momentum that takes it through the 200-day high, or sorry, the 100-day high at $200. And, and the question is, is there a position? I do realize he writes on. He, I do realize position sizes would be different due to the probable ATR difference between example one and two, with the bigger position size for the lower vol uh, in example one. I, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I'm going to let one of you answer this. Is there a difference of how the price gets to through one of our breakouts? I hope you answer the same. By the way, <laughs> we should all answer at the same time, and so he who's the odd one out. Maybe Jerry is this uh, this secret and, and and famous pattern recognition trader. I don't know, but uh, to me it doesn't matter. It's really like you know, uh, looking back at one hundred day, uh, 
highs or lows or closing prices, right? And, and if there is a new high being marked, then that's it. Whether that is uh, zigzagging to that point or going in a linear way, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's not going to, I'm sure it matters somehow, but not as it relates to my attitude about doing the trade. Um, it feels bad. Uh, you know, I think, uh, let's say you had this V bottom, like the S&P, and it's rallying, and then maybe it's getting close to going long. And then you have a tight consolidation for a year or two, and that breaks out to the upside using the same parameter as well. I mean, they just, I really like the second one better than the S&P, but I think the important thing here is that using these loose parameters, um, the breakout, and that can encompass all kinds of chart patterns that, in my opinion, mean nothing, is the way we you know, solidify the reliability and, our, and think about our systems being robust and that it incorporates all of these trades. I didn't make any claim. They all hit the 100-day high. That's what I bought. And so I'm including thousands of trades, hundreds of trades in my sample size. And I think um, this is our goal. And that's why we can't be too precise and fine-tune it so much. So it's the strength of trend following. Even though our brain looks at the pattern like it looked at those trends, well, there must be profit. Well, this pattern looks better than that pattern. Um, hit that breakout, and that's the lesson of 2020. Hit the breakout, get short, just follow your system. I had been talking to Moritz about this filter and pattern that I looked at in some of the trades, and uh, we were debating it back and forth, and uh, it just worked horribly in the crude and heating oil and unleaded. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm just thinking too much. So I think the lesson is don't think, hit those breakouts. Yeah, and I think also just to answer your question, Daniel, I think the point is that when you look at a portfolio, you're going to have some markets that does, you know, what you describe in example one and some markets that does what you describe in example two. So, you, and you need to take all of them. So you just treat them equal. Um, and don't, as Jerry says, don't think too much about it. Cool. All right. The next uh, few questions are all from James. Um, so uh, the first thing James is asking about is, um, you know, he said he talks about us being in the long-term trend following camp. And then he goes on to ask what time frame uh, would our initial look back period start from? You don't obviously you don't maybe you don't want to be too specific about this, uh, but but generally speaking, I mean, how sh how short in terms of time do we look? And um, that's the question, I guess. So we may all have different answers to that. I can just um, encourage uh, encourage him to to try things out. It's 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 not that difficult once you've set up the system. I'm not sure how he's doing it. Whether that's in Python or using a, a software such as, for instance, trading blocks or even in Excel, right? Just configure it such that uh, once you've done all the formulae, uh, you can change that look back parameter just by typing in a different thing or letting the computer run through it. Um, obviously, if you're trading weekly bars and you're looking at a weekly time frame, then you know your look back window is also a function of weeks. If you're doing things on a daily basis, then you know your look back parameter normally is a, uh, a function of days. And and then see where you are. You know, maybe start at you know for for argument's sake, start at start at twenty days. See what see what's happening there. Just out of interest, right? Go go to thirty, go to forty, go all the way to five hundred or even more. 
and see what happens to your system. And if you can find like an area, you know, you can imagine creating like a, a, a scatter plot or, or like a surface chart that shows you different statistics for your system, uh, depending on the lookback parameter that you have chosen. And then see if there's like a plateau or like an area where, you know, things cluster together and where it's like a, 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 good, a good environment to have those parameters located. This is how I'm doing it. I also realized that there are tremendous benefits uh, every once in a while to have shorter term lookback windows included in your system. Um, case in point, you know, we're, uh, we, we know Andrew. Andrew runs this uh, 40 in, 20 out system or 20 in, 40 out. I'm, I'm not sure which. No, 40 in, 20 out. Yeah. And this has been performing spectacularly this year especially since, you know, the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, it's kind of like shooting the lights out. Now, longer term, it's a very difficult system, I guess, to hold on to. Jerry mentioned the words, it's getting chopped up. Yeah, this, this has a lot of, this has a much higher risk of, you know, being chopped up, getting into positions and getting out of the same position, maybe on the same day or the next day or the day after, right? Because it's so short term. So it's difficult to hold on to the thing. But when stuff gets moving, it is there very quickly. And I have a little bit of an exposure to those shorter term timeframes because of that, because of that protective feature uh, at those points in time. Um, and, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's a matter of it's a matter of taste, a matter of choice and, and what people can stick to. I like that. That's all can add anything to that, because um, that's answering the question. I, I think that another thing I would that makes me think of is that I remember over the years, um, going through this transition of uh, 40 in, 20 out to uh, longer term parameters, and I would put up these um, weekly charts on my CQG machine, and I was just amazed. I mean, oh my gracious, these monster trends just pop out. Why am I concentrating on this short term trading when there's these um, massive trends out there, one or two year trends or longer, you know, Turkey dollar probably last five or 10 years. And there's been some massive trends with just, you know, slightly longer parameters. Then you hand it over to the research people and you say, hey, uh, what are the, I, I looked at the chart. I think it looks pretty good. Come back to me and tell me. And they're like, oh yeah, wonderful, perfect. You're right on it. You're exactly right. Performance is dominated by these big trends. You sort of uh, were able to figure out ballpark about how how uh, the, the proper optimal look back was on the historical data. And then they start showing you the drawdowns. And, uh, oh, it's nothing on the chart. It's, you know, it's nothing historically because you know what the answer is. It made lots of money. But then when you get it back and you see... Uh, the optimal portfolio, the optimal parameters. You're like, oh my gracious, what am I going to do about those drawdowns of five years, ten years ago? They they could happen again, and they do happen again. So there is, we're back to that same old dilemma, being able to live through it. And uh, the back test is can be so comforting, but it's not the real world. And we're living in the real world every day, and we have to sort of figure out, okay, I can I can trade this, I can handle it. Uh, it's difficult. Yeah, I want to answer that question as well um, in a different way. But before I do so, as as we're sitting here recording, about four minutes ago, I see this tweet tick, ticking in from Nassim Tlaib, 
apologizing to Moritz again for and to Cliff Asness. So all I'm just saying again? is that you know, uh, Talib, uh, oh. yeah, yeah, thanks and like, thanks and again apologize for the confusion. And I'm just saying, Talib and Cliff, if you're listening, which I hope you do, of course, um, you have an open invitation to come and continue your conversation um, right here. Um, you know, and Moritz will be the moderator. Yeah, I can do that. I'd be very happy to uh, to do that when those two gentlemen get on a on the podcast. This will be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Or you can come individually and we could just have a talk about whatever you want, almost at least. Anyways, I want to answer the questions uh, in, in a different way uh, because I think that is the dilemma. I mean, everything Jerry has said, everything Moritz has said is absolutely right. So what we did on our side, we did a study uh, where we took one uh, trend-following system and just said, let's look at what is the best look-back period each year for the last 30 years. What you find is that those look-back periods, if you just want to find the best one, changes dramatically from year to year. So one year you can have 20 days as the best one, the next year it's 240 days. So the point is, we don't know. Um, and so on our side, we acknowledge that and we have an ongoing process for selecting or calibrating our choices in terms of uh, look-back periods. So they don't stay constant. Um, they may change over time, but of course we select many different ones, so it's not like suddenly we're at 200-day plus and the next you know, month we're at you know, less than 100 days. It kind of gravitates towards the medium to longer term in that spectrum, but we don't... Um, we don't want to say, oh, you can't look at 20 days. I mean, if the model wants to look at 20 days, feel free. It never selects anything in that spectrum because short-term trend following, in our view, or we haven't found any way of doing that as profitable as the medium to long-term. But we don't want to set the restriction. We don't want to make any guesswork. It has to be the data that decides. But it comes back to the same point as Jerry and Mort says. It's just a different way of doing it, I guess. But... It's a good question, James. So thanks for that. James has another question. Ah, okay. I don't know whether you want to talk about this, Jerry, but um, it's your choice. He says, um, will Jerry back this week? Would he share how his Tesla position has fared? Perhaps a bit about the strength of the position throughout its January rally, uh, all through the COVID crisis, uh, and his observations of the equity portfolio in general. So I don't know if you have those kind of more or less in your mind, what's going on. Well, like I said earlier, the, <clears throat> I did have some stocks in my, uh, you know, I believe in a fixed universe. So of uh, currencies, commodities, bonds, and stocks. So I have my 25 stocks that I trade all the time that I chose strictly based on diversification. So uh, in January, they all crashed. <laughs> So uh, what happened? Well, <laughs> they're not, they're all, they're, they can get correlated sometimes. So um, I have uh, honestly um, uh, reduced my commitment to trading as many stocks as I thought I wanted to trade because of that fact. But I never going to back off the benefit of trading the individual stocks versus the indexes. Tesla, I was long and uh I don't think I have been, uh, I don't haven't tried to confuse people, but I don't try to say things so clearly that 
it would be impossible for people to miss it. So I'm, I'm requiring you to listen pretty carefully, I think. But uh, I do trade long term, but at some point I get out before that uh, exit is hit, you know, in extreme situations. So I was able to get out of my Tesla prior to the, the big, you know, the crash, all of the crash. I always do trend following trades, but then it rallied right back. So, uh, you know, even uh, the tools we may introduce that, that would not allow us to give back all of our profit if our long-term trailing stop got hit, um, you know, they don't always work. So it's a, um, I've seen this happen many times. It's, it's just one of those things when you do your back test and you, just, and you um, devise your systems and you accept them, you can go back and cherry pick on some trades and say, wow, it really did not handle this trade well. Or it really did handle this trade well. It's just add them all up, sum them all up, and that's what you have to look at. Uh, we're never probably trying to optimally handle you know, the current trade, the crude exit, you know, the crude and these commodities and the peso and the ruble, the volatility got so large so quickly, you know, historically, that's probably not a great sign. Getting out of those trades, you know, is going to be hard to preserve that profit. So these patterns in the markets, they're frequently not our friend and not doing what we want them to do. Yeah, and and um, just just adding to that, not that it's directly related to this, but it's something that um, that I, I I did some presentations, and we look back and at at sort of the four big crises that we've been trading because right now crisis is a big topic. So we looked at that, and so that's the '87 Black Monday. It's tech bubble, of course. It's the Great Financial Crisis or debt bubble, whatever you prefer. And then we have the current COVID, and um, and what's interesting about these periods, uh, obviously, some of them were long. I mean, they were like two-year periods. Some of them were very short. But, but even within a crisis, the the, the performance uh, is very rare. You know, very variable. I mean, you have a a period where you make a good amount of money, and then you can have easily six, eight, nine months where you lose money, and then suddenly it comes back. And overall, the crisis were was really profitable, but it's not profitable all the time. And that's exactly right with, with what you say, uh, Jerry. There is no, I mean, it's a mix of many things uh, that gives us the final output, so to speak. Um, so, yeah. Final question from James. Um, again, talking a little bit about the look-back periods. Um, and he talks about whether there is a particular spacing we look for between the look back. So for example, if we were starting at 50 day highs and lows, do we then go with 60 days, 70 days, et cetera, et cetera. And I can, again, just to answer that from my, or from our point of view, there is no uh, specifics, right? Because we allow the model again to dictate where it wants to pick. Um, so could it pick um, 151 days and 153 days? It could. So. Again, um, I'm, I'm sure it's just a matter of your process, how you want to choose it. Um, and, and spacing out does make sense. Of course, you don't want to pick all your your choices uh, within a 10-day uh, look-back period, of course. Um, but so on our side, there's no specific spacing between look-backs. Um, but that may be different, of course, on on your side, Jerry and Moritz, of course. Like I said, the computer will easy, easily step through all of the possible uh, look-back combinations. Um, 
what what I'm doing, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm not giving away any uh, anything that's too secretive here. Is um, uh, I I space it um, by the same percentage amount. So, for instance, if I had a sixty day look back, um, my next look back would then be ten percent more than that, which is sixty six. So this ensures consistency. I would also then you know increase my look back from two hundred days to two hundred and twenty days, which is the same ten percent increase. So, but you know, this is not. Uh, this is not rocket science. This just uh, this just the way I do it. You you could as well just go from two hundred to two hundred and one and two hundred and two and look at all of them. Uh, it's just more stuff to look at. Yeah, I uh, honestly just look at the trade stats. I don't uh, pay a lot of attention to the historical back test, other than average win, average loss average trade, win percentage. So I don't really want to get too focused on the historical NAV or sharp, sharp anything that to do with the sharp or what the history has looked like. Um, so I pretty much am just looking at the juiciness of the trade. Uh, what's my average win and winning percentage uh, at all the different parameters? So I'm just really looking to when is uh, what's the shortest term I can trade? What's the longest term I can trade? And so once I have those two ideas, I will just choose how many systems I just want to have to bother with, and without any regard to the other parameters, I'll just choose those other parameters. So if uh, if uh, fifty day high is my shortest term and a hundred day high is my longest term, I'll trade fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety, and a hundred. Without, I won't even care what 60, 70, 80, and 90 look like. I don't care. 50 is not too short term. 100 is not too, that's as far out as I want to go. I want to take as little from the data as possible. I uh, don't, I want to be the one person or one of the few who hardly pays any attention to any kind of back test at all. I just don't want to really know too much uh, other than uh, average win, average loss, and, uh, and then, then, unfortunately, you know, when you're trading these breakouts, uh, you get these clusters. You know, you got, I mean, I've probably, with tremendous computing power, at one point, I probably traded 200 systems. So it was stepping through, you know, in increments of five or something. So just because we had the power, and why not? We were trading a lot of money. Um, but they all cluster. I'll bet you there's been times where all 200 systems signaled on the same day. <laughs> Because a hundred fifty day breakout can equal a hundred day breakout and everything in between. So there's not uh, always a great deal of diversification. And when I've tried to force the diversification, I am going to have diversification using these breakouts. That has unfortunate, uh, I think, less than robust consequences as well. And I think it comes back to something that um, certainly has been known in the trend following community for. For, for decades, uh, at least I remember it from the very beginning, uh, back in 1990 or so. And that is that, you know, simplicity is really probably the hardest thing that we do is to try and take something that is kind of complex, but then turn it into something that's pretty simple. Um, and um, as we talked about earlier today, uh, that the most important thing is that you do the trades, whether it's a 66-day breakout or a 72-day breakout, probably doesn't matter in the long run anyway. So There was another tweet out there that um, somebody put out that I didn't really know this person, but they made this comment that um, 
just because you're a quant doesn't mean you have to have complex systems or that you will have complex systems or mm. simple is great and breakouts are great uh, and I can be a good quant uh, with breakout systems essentially it's the way I kind of twisted it or wanted to take it but I wrote back to this person and I said do you know any quants who use simple systems of course no he doesn't no one does <laughs> so uh, whatever I am, you know, I'll be introduced as a turtle trader or uh, a legend or an old timer, you know, and uh, and a quant. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, that is just not true. I'm not really a quant, you know, uh, and I think I should be thankful for that. I'm very happy. I'm a very jealous, competitive person. I will get very uptight because somebody is kicking my butt or I'm not performing well. These things really bother me. But uh, not being a quant and having to take a back seat to when the smart people get up on the stage and start talking about things I don't really understand, I am not jealous. Uh, it doesn't help me hit the breakouts. And doesn't that come back to our previous conversation uh, or topic today about labels, right? I mean, yeah, some people will call us quants now, but at the end of the day, we're, we're just, quote unquote, we're just trend followers. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. We buy when markets go up, we sell when markets go down. Getting out of those longs and into those shorts, whatever method you had, robust, systematic, one that you promised to do all the time, that's all that mattered. I mean, what a joke, AI and machine learning, during the most critical period of preserving capital, and writing that portfolio ship to where it would have the shorts on. Well, I don't even trade shorts. Oh my gosh, you're kidding. And then can you imagine how irrelevant? In fact, as I already said, some of my uh, filters and the fancy things that I use to perfectly time my entries and exits beyond just following the breakouts, they failed miserably. Can you imagine how irrelevant that was in a crisis situation? You know, what if, if is, you know, machine learning, I've said before, you know, I think AI can be fine as long as the final parameter is, is that a 50 day high? Yeah, if it's, a, you know, I've got all this code of AI machine learning, but the final uh, rule needs to be, is it at a new high? And so if it is, I'll do the trade. Well, okay, that's, that's safety. Uh, you better not be opposite these massive trends. The market took over and showed us who the boss was. And uh, all of your fancy spreadsheets and Python, you know, just get short as quickly as possible. I mean, if the market is going to go up or down by, you know, 100%, it's going to go up by 5% beforehand. So it's going to go through some of these breakouts. So you you just have to just have to do it and, and participate and see what happens. Got a few month-end data, uh, or I would say almost month-end. It's obviously uh, as of Thursday, which is uh, the day before the end of the month. I think yesterday was kind of a mixed day, so I don't, I wouldn't take too much uh, in terms of how the final number is going to look like. It was a down month, as we've already alluded to. The SockGen CT index was down by 1.12% and is down 1.42% for the year. The beta 50 index uh, was down 42 basis points as of Thursday, down 2.35% for the year. SockGen trend index down 1.56%, but still up for the year of 0.86%. The SockGen short-term traders index down about a quarter percent, still up 3.56 for the year. 
The bridge alternatives were down 2.27 for the month of May, uh, up 44 basis points for the year. Contrasting that, it was the MSCI World Equity Index up 4.63%, uh, but down 8.93% for the year. What else is on your mind? Um, of course, people can send a tweet storm to Jerry and ask him to come back next week. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I like this new format. Uh, I'm enjoying the podcast, and I enjoy Rob and uh, all the guests. And I think yeah. this is just a great. You guys are doing a great job, and thanks for having me back. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, of course. So um, any final thoughts, anything that um, we forgot to talk about today? I don't think so. Mm. I enjoyed it. Um, very great for Jerry to be back. Thank you. Yeah. This was fun. Thanks so much, Jerry. And uh, make sure you keep sending us the questions. You can either email them to uh, info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to uh, answer them as, as soon as we can. Sometimes we have to postpone it because of guests, but otherwise we do our best to do that. Um, I think with all of this, uh, I think we're going to wrap up our conversation today. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.